Good morning, and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Mark Turner, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present day. And today we want to welcome our guest, Karis Coker. Karis, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Arch. I appreciate the opportunity to join you. Well, we thank you for coming, and Karis is going to be speaking to us about the history and the background of the Bill of Rights and then talk about the Bill of Rights. And I met Karis many years ago when we were on the board, uh, Friends of Valley Forge board many, many years ago. And it was right the first time I met her that I realized she was a very, very special lady who has a love for our country, a love for our history and a love for our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Karis, if you could share with our listeners a little bit of your background, and then you can please start right into the background for our Bill of Rights. All right. Thank you, Arch. I grew up in West Virginia. I say rocked in the cradle of the hills. I wouldn't trade anything for that. But uh, uh, And I grew up among folks who had an appreciation for America's beginnings, our history, and for the faith of our fathers. When I was in high school, there was an unfolding of events where John Rockefeller came to town as the head of a Vista Workers for America program. And in consequent of his doings, my father and several others formed a committee requesting the county school board that he not be allowed to be on the high school campuses. And that was very justified by the things that were going on. But the school then formed a patriotic committee, and I was the chosen member of my class. And every morning we began with the Pledge of Allegiance, a quote from the Founding Fathers, and a word of prayer and the National Anthem. So that was not so long ago. Well, I suppose in some ways it was. That was back in the <laughs> 19, around 1970, <laughs> which is about 50 years ago this year. So this just reaffirmed the things that were in my soul. And uh, going off to college, sadly, those four years, was like a different world and then when I graduated in 75 and lo and behold the bicentennial was just ahead and all those concerns and appreciations both concerns I say for the country which my father had awakened in me as well as an appreciation for America that was reawakened on the bicentennial for which I thank God so Moving forward from there, I taught at a private Christian school where I met my husband who was going through Navy flight school, Mr. Eric Coker. And we came to Philadelphia then when he went to work for Boeing as a helicopter test pilot. Along the way, the Lord blessed us with 10 children, one wow. at a time. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we uh, had decided almost before they were born that we wanted to homeschool our children. And this was way back this would have been our oldest was born in 1980, so the very beginnings of the homeschool movement. So we've been involved with historic presentations. We began to publish some things out of an interest to preserve American history, which we saw was being misreported, if not actual willful, willfully distorted. And then after he left the Navy and we came to Philadelphia when he took a job with Boeing, we were very concerned about, as I say, about the way things were changing. We were here in 1990 and 91 when the Bill of Rights Bicentennial came around, and I visited Independence Park to see what their plans were, and frankly, there was hardly anything other than a display of a copy. They put things together, 
that was the beginning of our Bill of Rights Bicentennial Committee work. And they did put a program together, and that's a whole other story about how that unfolded. But <laughs> my idea of a National Day of Thanksgiving for the blessings of civil and religious freedom were not exactly what they had in mind, as was evidenced by what they undertook for their programming. But nevertheless, I was glad to see that something was done on a national level to observe the Bill of Rights Bicentennial. And both then and now, it was of concern to us about if, if, you, if an individual takes a copy of, prints out a copy of the Bill of Rights and you take a pen and you put a line through all those that have been negated or are under siege, you might say, it's very disturbing and it's very concerning. Um, and one of the reasons that has come about, I believe, is with a lack of knowledge of the American civil body politic, of the uniqueness and the wonder and the great rich blessing of our heritage as Americans in these things. Um, going back even to 1776, let alone all the way back to the roots beyond that. But Arch, I'm sure you're acquainted with the Magna Carta and its work there in 1215, right? Well, I believe some people believe, Kyrus, that I was probably a teenager when the Magna Carta was, <laughs> was, was penned. Um, yes, um, I am familiar with it. But contrary to what my, my sons believe, I was not around the one that was written. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess you, you've already put us both in the same time bracket with our <laughs> long ago co-membership on the board of the oh, Prince. Absolutely. <laughs> Frankly, <laughs> uh, I'm very grateful to have met you then for the work you did with the Friends and uh, Valley Forge at that time. And um, a little note on that, when Eric took the job with Boeing, I was absolutely thrilled. I never dreamed in all my life I would ever live this close to Valley Forge Park, to Independence Hall and, and, and these places. It was, was a rich treasure. Mm -hmm. But... Um, but prior to the Magna Carta was the Constitutions of Clarendon around 1150, which was less about less than 75 years before the Magna Carta. And some have called, frankly, the Constitutions of Clarendon the spark of the uh, Reformation, the early spark of the Reformation. And it's interesting, it contained particularly a clause requiring that clergymen who broke the law or committed crimes would be subjected to the same courts and the same laws as the citizens rather than get a slap on the wrist by the church courts and then relocated somewhere else to continue their crimes in other arenas. But when the Magna Carta came, it's interesting people have the idea that this was the, the beginning of American liberty or the beginning of the mm -hmm. legacy of liberty. But it's, it's, these were ancient, and William Penn writes much about this, these were the ancient and accepted rights of the Englishmen, and they were put in writing to make sure there was no question about it from their kings. And so it didn't begin with the Magna Carta. This was its first written record, but it didn't begin there. And William Penn, in his famous trial, well, of 1670, I think it was, where he was prevented a defense. He was charged for preaching on the street after the state had closed the church, and then they held him guilty of making a riot. 
and the jury refused to find him guilty, even after the judge dismissed Penn from the courtroom and refused to allow him to offer defense. But Penn, realizing what was at stake, had republished a transcript of his trial, along with an appendix of what would have been his defense if he had been allowed to make a defense. And that appendix is the, one of the most wonderful summaries of the history of the liberty of oh. Englishmen. It's excellent. And I highly recommend, in fact, we have reprinted that trial with the appendix. Often the trial's been reprinted and, and so forth. And frankly, lawyers in Philadelphia used to act it out every year, the transcript of his trial. But that has not been done for quite a while. Um, so the Magna Carta was the writing of these things. And the barons who met with King John on the field at Runnymede, they went there with their weapons in hand and they said, it's either you acknowledge that these are our rights as Englishmen and you, though king, are bound to take note of them and to regard them. And if you don't sign this document, we're going to war. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was a, he didn't, he saw the handwriting on the wall with the uh, weapons at hand and he signed it. And then he immediately began to take measures to get out of what he had signed. That is, I, I, back around 2020, at the turn of the millennia, in the homeschool newsletter here in Delaware County, I wrote a series of articles for the homeschool newsletter about famous persons and papers in the second millennium and covered the things from the barons and Magna Carta on through the petition of right of 1628 and the impact of the translation of the scriptures into the language of the people of England and its impact on the awakening of a civil body politic to realize that God himself holds kings and rulers accountable to the Ten Commandments as well as the individual. And this is a, a wonderful little piece, if I may say so, that just summarizes the unfolding legacy of liberty that is ours in America. And for sake of time and for this background, I'm just going to mention these in order, if I may, as they come. Well, and that sure. would be the Magna Carta of 1215, which is wonderful to read through an updated text of it, so to speak, to get past those peculiar letters and spellings. But uh, that's rich, too, if you want to read that. <laughs> then there was the translation of the scriptures from Tyndale, or Wycliffe and then Tyndale. And you know that expression that's often credited, and he did use it with great understanding, Abraham Lincoln, the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That expression originated with Wycliffe and his translation of the scripture, and he wrote on civil matters, and he saw the Bible as the bastion for the citizens of the people of England against overreaching uh, kings and rulers. And so these things were not unknown to our founding fathers here in 1776. Mm -hmm. And with the unfolding of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther was that great. Did you know that uh, Wycliffe met with Luther <laughs> at a huh. short time he, when he, and worked for a while in the same town on his own translation? Then we come to 1620 and the Mayflower Compact, which that date of their feeling a need to depart from their homeland, well, that was in 1608 that they left England and went to Holland, and then from there they came to America in 1620. And 
there were many events unfolding in Europe at the time, including 1620 was going to mark the end of a treaty between Spain and various other countries, and war was on the horizon between England and the Netherlands and Spain, and the pilgrim leaders were looking to extricate themselves from what was going to be a difficult situation, and where would they go? And they considered different places in the New World, even in South America, but they settled on the northern parts of the Virginia colony. So they came in 1620, and then in 1628, back in England, you have a very significant document called the Petition of Right of 1628, which was a reaffirmation by their uh, officials in Parliament against an overreaching monarch. And then, of course, there were the civil wars of England, the parliamentary wars, which were, once again, to push back against the concept of divine right of kings. And then there was the Commonwealth, and the Oliver Cromwell was the Lord Protector of England at that time, and he was a man much admired by many of our founding fathers, even beyond Patrick Henry, who quoted him in 1765, or referred to him. <laughs> Remember his famous quote about the Snap Act? He said, um, Caesar had his Brutus, mm -hmm. Charles I his Cromwell, and George III was interrupted with cries of treason, and he concluded with May profit by their example. But a little Dover a publication on ships of the colonial war notes that many ships and boats and vessels were named the Oliver Cromwell to strike terror in the hearts of the British. <laughs> uh, that was an interesting little discovery. So those events unfolded, and then when the monarchy was restored, there began, once again, the usurpation of power by the crown of Charles II, James II, and that led to what's been called the Grand and Glorious Revolution of 1689, when William of Orange and Queen Mary were brought to England as co-regents. And on the banner of his ship that sailed into England, it read for the Protestant religion and the rights of Englishmen. And that was the first use of the term Bill of Rights. And Bishop Burnett, who was their personal chaplain, who also served in Parliament, who also was chairman of the committee on the Bill of Rights, he drafted then a document called, for the first time, the Bill of Rights. But it was a list of the rights of Englishmen that William and Mary signed before they were sworn in as the monarchs, before they were crowned as the monarchs of England. So these are the things that our own founding fathers were knowledgeable of. And of course, William Penn laid a bland and wonderful foundation that's too often overlooked here in Pennsylvania with his great Charter of Liberties of 1680. And I would urge anyone, if at all possible, when it is possible, to visit the museum at Pensbury Manor. They have, within the last 10 years, I think it is, they have installed a wonderful museum which gives a lot of this uh, history as it relates to William Penn and his contributions to our American legacy of liberty. And you may have heard it said yourself when you visit various historic locations in the southeastern Pennsylvania area that in 1776, 
the colonists decided they wanted to try a new experiment with this idea called liberty. It was not a new experiment. They were preserving what had been their heritage, their inheritance, secured to them by the charters of the original colonies when they settled this in the new world. It was not a new concept. They were preserving their rights that had been theirs as Englishmen, and uh, they wanted to keep them for themselves and their posterity. So next time, I hope we can have a look at how the Bill of Rights unfolded here in the colonies. But Arch, do you have anything you want to contribute to this at this point? Well, I, there's a couple of questions, Karis, that I would like to ask you. And then if you would please comment on these. I listened, as you were speaking, I was listening from the Magna Carta all the way through William Penn. And it looks like that in every one of these documents and every one of these movements, there was a significance in with these people, a, a, a firm understanding of God and the scriptures and human rights. And so, so if you would comment on that, because it's the common thread with uh, our basic rights with these movements and these individuals with an understanding of the scriptures and what they teach and God in their lives as, as a supreme being. All right. May I ask how much time do we have at this point? <laughs> we're, we're, we probably have about seven minutes in this session. So okay. and All take right. your time because we can, can we can pick up right on the next in, in the next program. So time is not important. All right, so the significance of the creator and of an understanding of our relationship to the divine being that rules over all is very critical. And this was noted in all of the charters of the different colonies that were settled from not just Plymouth, but even back in Jamestown in 1607. The acknowledgement of man's duty to his creator was the underpinning. And in our Declaration of Independence, endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are the right to life, liberty, and happiness. And perhaps in the next program, we can go into what they understood by that expression, happiness, because mm -hmm. it's much more than what is commonly understood. Sure. But so it is a recognition that every human being is created in the image of God that gives a purpose and a guideline and an obligation to treat them with respect and to fulfill the golden law to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And this was foundational to the understanding of our founding fathers. And, you know, it's interesting when you look back and, you know, this past November and December, was the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim Journey and the Mayflower Compact, which was the first document of government, self-government, that originated in the New World. Other documents, any documents before that, originated on the other side of the Atlantic and were brought with them to the New World. But the Mayflower Compact was drafted in the harbor, as we know, outside up in Cape Cod. And there's an interesting book, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's in the library, of a chronologically arranged collection of the governing documents here in the New World. And it makes this observation, it just gives a small introduction, it was someone's thesis for a doctorate somewhere, and then it was compiled into this book form. 
but the Mayflower Compact and their laws, it notes, are based on the idea, it's evident, that we are granted our rights from God and no government, no individual is free to abrogate those rights. And then when it comes to the colony of Maryland, which makes the great boast of being the first colony with religious freedom, but when you get to their documents, he said that it's evident the difference in perspective between Plymouth and Massachusetts and Maryland and their original documents. Because the Maryland Document of Rights is written as though they are granted from a benevolent governor or ruler or even dictator, and they are free to be withdrawn at any point. And when you look more closely into the history of Maryland, it was evident in the way that religious freedom or lack thereof was observed in Maryland. Huh. <laughs> That's a very interesting story. There was a man in Baltimore, a Reverend William Nevins, I think was his name, who did a series of newspaper articles that were then compiled into a book, and it was called The Barons of Baltimore, and it goes way back, and it shows the true account of the story of liberty in the state of Maryland, which is not to the credit, and there's another volume we have, which was a man's effort to amend the record of Maryland for the sake of truth, and by the way the story is still told, he was obviously unsuccessful, but that's a different story. <laughs> but it is critical. And when we have come to a time where, you know, the Lord said that for those who would offend one of these little ones that believe on him, that it would be better for them that a millstone would be hanged around their neck and they would be cast into the sea. And I think what judgment rests upon the present day curriculum in the public schools? That's a very serious thing where children who do believe in God as their creator are mocked and ridiculed and held at arm's length. It is a matter of concern for the consequence. And I believe that it is critical for our future as a nation that there be a recognition that our rights do come from a creator. And we have obligations to him in the exercise of those rights as well and how we use them. Our founding fathers could not conceive of the way in which freedom of speech, so to speak, is used to advocate for free and open pornography or blasphemy. And we know by their own laws that that was not ever their intention. And I'm reminded of what Cromwell said when he was gathering together the men for his troop that came to be known as the Ironsides, who were invincible. But he said, God doesn't fight for swearers and tapsters, drunkards and Sabbath breakers. And he was determined to have a body of godly men in that unit. And mm. God's blessing on them was very evident. So, yes, it is critical. And unfortunately, Carrie, we're up against time for this segment. Would you share with our listeners where they would be able to get more information, and particularly with the organization that you work with on the Bill of Rights? Sure. Thank you, Arch. They can contact me through my email address. That would be K-O-C-H. E-R-C-J at G-M-X dot com. Coker C-J at G-M-X dot com. Or they can reach me by mail at Post Office Box 912, Concordville, C-O-N-C-O-R-D-V-I-L-L-E, Concordville, Pennsylvania, 19331. And we have done work for years under the Bill of Rights Bicentennial Committee. And then more recently, I think as you're acquainted with, we have started with American Liberty Tours. 
Yes. We bring history of the past to the present. It's essential for our future. Yes. So, well, Karis, we want to thank you for sharing the background of the Bill of Rights with us and a reminder that we are not here in a vacuum and how important it is for us to recognize and understand where we have come from, the history of the Bill of Rights, the acknowledgement of God and the scriptures and our human rights because they are ordained from God. And in our next program, Karis is going to be speaking to us about what we know as Americans as the Bill of Rights. So Karis, thank you for coming today and sharing the background of the Bill of Rights with our listeners. You're welcome, Arch. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. This is WFYL 1180 AM, Working for Your Liberty.